0: Welcome to the DTB podcast for January 2017, volume 55, number one. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's Deputy Editor. And I'm James Cave, uh,
1: DTB Editor-in-Chief.
0: So, Happy New Year to to everyone. Uh, And we begin this year with an editorial on the perennial problem of managing sore throats. Uh, In particular, we focus on a proposal from NHS England to introduce a test and treat service in community pharmacies under its National Innovation Accelerator programme. So, James, what's being proposed?
1: Uh, So, the plan behind this is that rather than going to your GP when you have a sore throat, as long as you're over 12, you go to your pharmacist. The pharmacist will assess the risk of you having a bacterial sore throat by using uh, a scoring system. And those that are at risk will be offered a near-patient testing test for Strep A, And if it's positive, uh, one is presuming that you'll then be offered an antibiotic or uh, offered the chance to go to your GP and, I suspect, expect an antibiotic from
0: them. So what's the rationale for (laughs) engineering this service?
1: So the the idea behind this is that it uses the obvious talents of pharmacists and at the same time takes some of the heat out of general practice. At least that's that's the theory. And uh, there's been a, a small... NHS uh, service pilot by Boots involving about 367 people so a very small pilot sort of study which seemed to suggest that uh, The NHS might save 34 million pounds a year if this was carried out uh, across the the country
0: so this pilot survey or this pilot uh, evaluation of a small service based on those 367 patients was testing the acceptability or was it actually looking at the evidence for whether it changes outcomes
1: well this is the problem it it didn't have a control group so we don't know how it compares um, if if you had a control group who were being managed in the normal way. What it basically does it looked at the number of patients who ended up going through the system and and used that plus quite old data from 2007 on the level of antibiotic prescribing amongst GPs then to come with this idea that it would reduce antibiotic prescribing and save money.
0: So what's our problem
1: well we had lots of problems with it unfortunately um there's big issues of course the thing about sore throats and bacteria is that we always seem to forget when we're doing these sorts of things that the human body has its own immune system and therefore actually just the presence of a strep a bug somewhere in your body does not mean that you are septic and need antibiotics so they've got all kinds of concerns about whether it's right that we should take something, which increasingly GPs, I think, are beginning to demedicalise and actually treat um, in a very different way. And actually, the reduction in antibiotic prescribing in this group has come on leaps and bounds over the last 10 years or so. And it feels to us as if they're now almost industrialising sore throats back again to being a medical problem where they have to have a test and have to be assessed um, with scoring systems to decide who or who shouldn't get antibiotics.
0: So it feels a little bit as though this proposal lies outside sort of current evidence and current practice.
1: Precisely. I mean, I think GPs have got very good now at uh, being able to manage uncertainty and explain to patients that uh, whether this is or is not a bacterial infection, actually the use of antibiotics makes very little difference to the outcome, that perhaps 1% of patients with bacterial sore throats will develop a complication of some sort and it's more how you safety net and manage all patients with sore throats that's important not deciding who or who should not get an antibiotic
0: so at the moment this is a proposal
1: it's a proposal it's gone through i think the first stage in the innovations accelerator program i just hope it goes no further
0: or at least is modified before it precisely it's the pharmacies okay thank you very much our first main article this month looks at the place of long-acting bronchodilator combinations for management of copd so typically for people with copd who remain symptomatic or have exacerbations despite monotherapy with a long-acting agent your options are to add another long-acting agent or an inhaled steroid so in your experience what tends to be the route most people go down
1: so We've got the nice guidelines. Have been out since 2010. They're a bit old now. And what they suggested was that patients with moderate uh, or mild COPD should have a long-acting beta agonist or long-acting muscarinic antagonist after the short-acting first line. And then, if they continue to be symptomatic or have a lot of uh, exacerbations, you could then um, start adding an inhaled corticosteroid. And I think the trouble we had with The guidance in the past is that everyone tended just to fall into triple therapy. So an inhaled corticosteroid, a long-acting muscarinic antagonist, and a long-acting beta agonist.
0: Because the very nature of the condition is that it doesn't get better. Precisely. You will tend to have exacerbations or symptoms carry on. So inevitably, people move to higher and higher levels of treatment, and you add and add and add. What's the problem with inhaled steroids in this population?
1: Well, the big issue which has come out is this concern that patients on inhaled corticosteroids have an increased incidence of uh, pneumonia. And that's and that's been the big issue, which has seen definitely a reigning back on the use of inhaled corticosteroids in patients with uh, COPD. Still obviously got a big part to play currently. With th- this asthma COPD overlap, um, ACOS, but with patients with COPD, really the, the, the feeling is that we should be reining back on the use of inhaled corticosteroids. So
0: that plays up the sort of importance of the Lamma Labber combinations. So we've used this to review, this article, to review four combinations that are currently licensed in the UK for the management of COPD. What, what's the evidence suggest about these drugs? <laughs>
1: It, it was an interesting exercise looking at all this because, you know, we've got often some big numbers, big studies, and actually the overall, the outcome was much the same for all these combinations. So most of the studies looked at lung function testing, often this trough FEV1, so the sort of The lowest um, FEV1 just before the next dose was due of the inhalers. They also looked at transitional dyspnea indexes, um, the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire, and exacerbations. And the outcome from all the studies, really, is which tended not to compare one with another of the combination, but actually looked at the combination versus the monotherapy. Hey, presto, what they found was that actually the combination was inevitably better than the individual monotherapies at a statistical level. And there was also some, usually some clinical improvement um, in addition to that, although that was quite, often quite slight in in the sort of bottom line.
0: So you get small improvements in lung function, which may or may not reach kind of threshold, which anyone might notice. Yeah. A slight reduction in exacerbations, which could be anything from Slight increase in breathlessness to full blown hospitalization are not always clear.
1: It was that's one of the issues here was that very often it wasn't clear how severe the exacerbation was, and a lot of them looked at all exacerbations, which, as you say, could be everything from just a slight increase in breathlessness with cough, perhaps a bit more productive cough, to actually a full blown hospital admission. And ov- obviously, whilst all exacerbations would be good to uh, diminish, the difference between a hospital admission and a few days of increased cough or expectoration of, of sputum really don't really compare
0: so but the evidence suggests that there is a slight benefit we can question the clinical significance of adding the two two together nothing to suggest Major differences between the four combinations?
1: No, absolutely not. Um, we've got no direct comparative studies, but um, the indirect studies we have seem to show very similar differences in lung function and the clinical scores.
0: And anything to guide us on the choice between a laba/lama combination and a laba inhaled corticosteroid?
1: So we we do have a systematic review we looked at and meta-analysis which involved about 4,000 participants. It was quite a short set of uh, studies, only, I think, maximum of 26 weeks. But it seemed to show that the LABA-LAMA combination had fewer exacerbations and fewer episodes of pneumonia than the inhaled corticosteroid long-acting
0: beta-agonist combination. But nothing dramatic between the two.
1: No, I think, and as I say, the the, the fact that it was um, very limited uh, follow-up obviously had an impact on, on that.
0: So bottom line? The bottom
1: line, I think, is that these undoubtedly will have a place to play. They are going to be useful for patients in that they're not going to have to juggle inhalers. But I think it's really important for the clinicians prescribing these items to keep in mind that they are there purely to treat symptoms or reduce exacerbations. And the reduction exacerbation issue is one that we must remember that most patients with COPD do not get exacerbations. There are a minority of patients who get multiple exacerbations, and for them a an increase in treatment is beneficial. But for many patients, we're just talking about symptomatic relief. And therefore the choice of what we use here is going to be largely down actually probably to the patient's ability to use the inhaler. And you know, it may well be that they'll be moving from um, one device to a new device and want to keep that the same and therefore that will in effect lead you to decide which sort of therapy they take as a, as a combination.
0: Okay thank you very much and our final article this month reviews pitilicent if that's how you pronounce it. It's a new drug for narcolepsy so narcolepsy is not common um, so what's our interest in this particular drug
1: well I mean I first you're right it's not common I was I was struck actually by the prevalence rate is meant to be about one in 2000 so in theory every GP has got a patient with narcolepsy and I I haven't found mine yet but yet it's this is a rare condition and pitolicent or however you pronounce it or wackix or wakex which is its uh, uh, branded name is an H3 antihistamine, which basically activates histamine neurons in the brain and stimulates and maintains wakefulness. At least that's that's the theory.
0: So it's got this orphan drug status from the European Medicines Agency, which means what?
1: Yeah, this is is an interesting process that the EMA introduced. The idea behind this is that if you have a rare condition, the risk is that nobody wants to develop treatments for it because they're never going to get very much in the way of a market to sell their... Drug into so the EMA has um, offered incentives around legal advice and waived fees, and also market exclusivity for at least ten years following a successful uh, license for drugs that are for disabling or life-threatening conditions, which are rare. And uh, Pitolisant gained this orphan status.
0: So it's gone gone through that, and because it's rare, presumably the evidence base isn't
1: huge. Yeah, I know that when we had five studies, most of which have not been published, 428 patients we're talking about form the basis for the evidence behind this. We have two pivotal studies that were important for the approval of this drug, of which only one has been, been published.
0: And that was comparison against? So this was
1: try, I'm comparing it with uh, modafinil and placebo. And what they found in this study was that they were looking in particular at the Epsworth sleepiness scale. And there were about 2.5 point change difference in the uh, patolicent group compared to the placebo group. Now, you probably need a three point difference for a clinically significant effect. So in this study, the um, patolicent didn't actually hit Clinical significance level compared to placebo, although the drug company did actually demonstrate other trials in the EMA bumped it up. Um, so if you compare all the studies, you get a three to three point four point change in the Epsworth Sleepiness Scale. So on the study published, it doesn't uh, demonstrate superiority over placebo, but in the overall group of studies looked at by the EMA, it did.
0: Everyone does does something, and reminder of our editorial in December, which was talking about harms and the long-term unknowns about harms. What do we know so far about the harms associated with this?
1: So th- this is difficult. It's There are a number of uh, warnings about it regarding uh, QT interval. What drug these days hasn't got a QT interval uh, warning associated with it? With regard to just adverse effects, it seems to cause headache, insomnia, and gastric hyperacidity uh, are its three commonest sort of clinical adverse effects, but the lack of long-term safety data has required by a project farmer who uh, are marketing this drug to produce long-term safety data to be collected over the next five years, and they must publish that by twenty twenty-three.
0: So, a difficult decision for clinicians knowing a little bit about its efficacy but not a lot about its long-term safety
1: precisely and and, uh, in the study that was published they compared it to uh, modafinil and it did they did a non-inferiority study comparing it with modafinil and it didn't hit the non-inferiority level so it was noted to be inferior to modafinil also the cost it's going to cost between 280 and 580 pounds a month to prescribe um, pitolisant to patients compared to 13 to £26 pounds for modafinil.
0: So still quite a lot of unanswered questions.
1: Indeed. I mean, it's another option, um, but I think it's important that um, we appreciate that at the moment um, it's really only going to be offered by specialists for those patients who really can't tolerate or there's some contraindication to the current medication available.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Uh, To read these or any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments or suggestions, please email dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you very much.